Hello, my name is Moira Shuri, and I'm the Executive Director of Zocalo Public Square. Welcome to today's event. After a busy election season and a high-tension year for the United States, we at Zocalo are asking the question, what do we do now? At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events like the one we're watching today. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. As we sort through the events of 2020 and look ahead to what comes next, we need to take stock of where we find ourselves at this moment. Julian E. Barnes will be moderating today's discussion with Asha Rangappa. Julian covers national security and intelligence agencies for the New York Times. And he's also reported for the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and US News and World Report. Over to you, Julian. Hello, and thank you, Moira. It's an honor to be honor, uh, moderating a Zocalo event for the second time. I want the whole Zocalo team to know that when I get three more hosting gigs, I'm going to expect a jacket like the five-time hosts of Saturday Night Live. The title question for this event, What Do We Do Now?, is the final line of the 1972 Robert Redford movie, The Candidate, a movie almost as old as I am. Redford, if you don't know, plays a candidate who unexpectedly wins a big election and has no idea what he's supposed to do now that he's won. The good news for this audience is that Asha Rangappa, unlike Robert Redford, knows what we do now. She's a senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and a former associate dean at Yale Law School. Prior to her current position, Asha served as a special agent in the New York division of the FBI, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. You've seen her on CNN, where she's a legal and national security analyst. We're gonna to look today at what's happened to the national security institutions over the last four years and what needs to happen next um, for, the, for the Biden administration. Um, and so Asha, let's start with your old shop, the FBI. There's no agency more maligned by President Trump. Um, uh, and does that criticism go away when Trump leaves uh, or does the criticism that he's leveled at uh, agents at the former assistant director, uh, charging them as so, uh, sources of bias and unprofessionalism. Does that do long-term damage? What's broken for good? I don't think it's broken for good, but I think uh, whenever these institutions that we rely on to be nonpartisan and independent get uh, politicized, um, you know, it's always bad and, and it takes some time to undo. Um, I think that's especially true for the Department of Justice and the FBI, because the rule of law is, you know, it's as important that the law is perceived as being impartial as the actors within them, you know, actually imparting uh, uh, impartial justice. Um, also true for the judiciary. So I think um, rebuilding that sense of legitimacy, which I think will hopefully mean, you know, I, I think just simply not being the target of uh, vocal attacks by the person sitting in the Oval Office will, will go a long way. But I think it's going to be a challenge because under a Biden administration, 
there may be crimes that are uncovered involving people from the prior administration. Um, and you know, this once again will place the Department of Justice and the FBI in political crosshairs, um, even if they are pursuing legitimate investigations. So I think this is gonna be a challenge for, for a little while. What do you think um, about whether those, we have a tradition, right? Where we don't in America prosecute the prior administration, right? In general, I mean, Nixon got a pardon. Um, uh, we don't throw uh, previous presidents in, in jail. Um, but we've seen a lot of uh, coverage sort of arguing that there should be some robust investigations of what the Trump administration did. What's your position? What do you think? Is that productive for a Biden administration, necessary or a distraction? You know, I've, I've come to, I've come around, I think, on this topic. There, there was a point where I thought, um, you know, it could be worth it to, you know, if, if we could have Trump step down, for example, and agree to walk away in exchange for some immunity, um, that that actually might be the best trade-off for the U.S., which was, you know, I, I think kind of the, the Ford-Nixon approach, that there's additional harm that's done to the national psyche, to our sense of legitimacy by continuing to prosecute that. Um, I think as we've, you know, in the last year, especially under uh, the Attorney General uh, Bill Barr, um, I've kind of come around to, you know, I think that there's just too much going on that, you know, really does need to be looked at on so many different fronts from the policy front, um, you know, for example, the separating uh, children from their parents and, you know, those, what are the, what are the OLC memos underlying that? I mean, that to me is kind of in the realm of when we discovered that the W administration had authorized torture, for example, um, to possible actual corruption at the personal level um, by individual people. Um, I think the way to split the baby is for a Biden administration to um, appoint a special counsel. <laughs> I know we're kind of special counseled out, but um, I think you really want someone who is uh, is insulated from political influence um, and has a very clear mandate that they follow. Um, I think that's the best that we're gonna be able to do short of just letting it go, which I just don't think is gonna be an option. Nothing triggers President Trump like a special counsel. Um, <laughs> so, you know, one area of criticism that the Trump administration has leveled at the FBI that that has some some underlying merit is is FISA abuse. The DOD Inspector General uh, found that there were uh, errors made in requesting uh, surveillance foreign surveillance warrants uh, on uh, American individuals. What do you think, should this be something that, it, that a new Congress looks at? Is how important should this be in terms of rebuilding trust in the FBI or is it really hopelessly partisan at this point and should not be a priority for Biden? No, I think um, we, you know, I think Congress should absolutely look at it, but I think we also have to understand what the nature of the problem is. Um, the inspector general did find uh, 
many errors um, in the FISA application, uh, particularly for Carter Page um, in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Um, I think you did find that those weren't really a result of political bias, um, which frankly is more problematic because it suggests that they're, it's systematic. Um, and then a broader audit of FISA applications across the Bureau found you know, various kinds of oversights and errors. Um, you know, I don't want to go down into the weeds of, of what, you know, to, to repair, um, but I think we do need to look at those system, those systemic errors and figure out a way to increase the, I think the, the issue is how do we increase the accountability of agents who are pursuing these electronic surveillance orders um, and the, the representations that they make in court. Mm -hmm. Um, because there's there's a lot of bureaucracy that has now been put in between those two ends of the process, um, which allows things to fall through the cracks, which kind of makes people feel not um, maybe as uh, responsible for what goes in. Um, and I think that's that's where we need to to look at because ultimately these are um, we're looking at the balance between national security and civil liberties um, and in that balance, I think you always want to put the responsibility on the government uh, to be as close to error-free uh, as possible, um, especially when you have a, a procedure that's being done in secret and where the accountability is going to be lower than it might be, say, in a criminal process. So as you know, Trump has been firing a number of people in this sort of transition period we're in now, uh, certainly a lot of high-profile firings at the Pentagon. Um, there's no other official in his crosshairs uh, more than Christopher Ray, um, but do you think that Trump will fire him? And if he does, who should Biden look to nominate as a, a replacement? So um, I'm going to give it high odds that Trump fires Christopher Ray. Hmm. Uh, if for no reason, then I think it'll just make him feel better. <laughs> um, you know, in in the last few months, I think. Uh, and, and I've been relieved to see this. I think uh, Ray has been one of the few appointees, um, particularly in the national security intelligence community establishment that has really held the line on, on the truth. Uh, and, and from a law enforcement perspective, um, let's remember that Ray is the one who, you know, in front of Congress pushed back on this idea of Antifa as a domestic terrorist organization. He said, we investigate uh, crimes, not ideologies, which is true. Um, he's uh, noted that, uh, you know, white nationalism, white supremacy is a rising um, domestic uh, terrorism threat. He pushed back on the voter fraud narrative. Um, and, you know, I suspect that he has not behind the scenes gone along with, you know, other, other attempts to, to shape the narrative. Um, I will say that what we learned from uh, the firing of James Comey in 2017 is, you know, this is, if he does do that, it'll be symbolic. I don't think it will affect the day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, work of the Bureau, um, which is quite decentralized, and it happens at the at the rank-and-file agent level. I, I had a debate on this with, with uh, my colleague Matthew Miller um, on Twitter. I think that if Ray is fired, that Biden should reappoint him. Um, the FBI director is appointed for a 10-year term. The idea is that the director, barring misconduct or some kind of uh, 
you know, for cause firing um, is going to be there, you know, through administrations, including administrations of, of different parties um, as a way to establish independence and the nonpartisanship of, of the Bureau. So I think that would go a long way towards reinforcing that norm, that this is one agency where every president doesn't get their guy um, in, into the head of, uh, of the FBI. Um, I think reasonable people could disagree, um, but I think given that he has not done anything that's, you know, prima facie outrageous or, you know, I think he ha and he holds a lot of respect, I think, within the Bureau, which is the other thing, you really want to keep the people in the FBI, um, you know, confident that uh, there's going to be stability in, in their leadership. So Biden's going to most likely face a Republican Congress. I mean, do you think that, I mean, Ray, Ray has been demonized for Trump for months. Would Republicans fall in line with Trump and oppose a, a renomination? Or would they, uh, do you think he appeals to that sort of the inner mainstream Republican in a, in a- It would put in them in a pickle, right? I mean, they, they confirmed him before. Right. And again, there's nothing to point to that he's done that is either partisan or, you know, even with Comey, who you could maybe argue had, um, you know, kind of gone rogue and had not followed Department of Justice policy. There's nothing, I mean, this guy has like been by the book. Uh, I think he's been incredibly thoughtful. He's, you know, pursued, you know, many things uh, that I expect um, the administration probably is proud of in terms of investigative priorities and things like that. So I, I think it would be tough for, you know, it would, it would be tough for them to justify not confirming him again, which is partly why I think it would be a good test, mm. um, you know, to see how they would thread that needle if that's what they wanted to do. So also on the hot seat is Gina Haspel. And I want to turn from the FBI to, to the CIA and the intelligence community writ large here. Um, the president has been less public, less consistent with his criticism, but he surely has labeled the uh, IC as part of a, a deep state. And he has had a comfort level with his last two DNIs um, who've been way more political than traditional uh, leaders. Um, so how badly politicized do you think the intelligence community, the, the DNI, the CIA uh, are right now? And how hard is that to, to undo it? Um, I, think, I think interestingly, I think the, uh, the CIA and the DNI, I think you can write that shit a little bit easier. Um, you know, th th those, are ultimately, um, I mean, the heads are definitely, they're, you know, clearly political appointees. Um, their work should not be politicized, but ultimately they are um, positions that feed into policy. Um, and so, you know, I think we saw, for example, um, under W, there was some politicization of intelligence in terms of our going to war with Iraq. I mean, we had the, the torture <laughs> debacle, all those things. You know, I think um, with the right leadership, uh, both in the Oval Office and with these agencies, I think you can kind of reestablish um, uh, 
some, you can write the ship uh, because I think there, it's more important what's happening behind the scenes in those cases. Unlike say with the Justice Department or FBI where you're bringing cases into court, you need public, you know, you need um, public buy-in because that is how, that is part of how they are successful. Um, if you have a jury that completely thinks the FBI is corrupt, you're not gonna actually, you know, get the bad guy. Um, whereas I think with the CIA, um, you know, you want to make sure that things are on the up and up by the behind the scenes. And I think, um, I think with the right leadership, they can do that. So it would be very surprising if Biden, who is somebody in his career, who is bought into this idea of apolitical uh, intelligence, would, would appoint someone in the mode of John Ratcliffe or Rick Grinnell, somebody who's a big partisan defender. But but down the line, has the, the acts over the last year of having a loyalist in this job uh, at the head of the intelligence community, is that going to be tempting for other future presidents, do you think? Will they want to put uh, less of an intelligence professional and more of a sort of reliable political voice, if not at the CIA, then at the DNI? Well, I think we've definitely seen what happens um and you know that that is possible and the damage that happens um you know i think <laughs> um i think the question is how can we create more checks around that i mean theoretically like, so first of all the dni statutorily is required to have extensive intelligence experience so i mean we've had a president who's completely ignored the qualifications that are even necessary for these positions and then you know our check is supposed to be the senate confirmation process um so you know it's hard because we theoretically have guardrails built in. Those guardrails have just given way. I mean, it's just, it, we talk about off the rails, like literally the guardrails have not held in a lot of ways. Um, so I think absolutely there's gonna be a temptation. And I think the, I think it's what we need to do is emphasize, it matters who you put into the Oval Office. You know, that it is, the presidency is the most awesome office in the world in terms of the power and influence that it has, not only to shape the course of things that happen in this country, but in the world. And it's very hard to legislate and rein it in, which means you are, you are depending on the character and good faith and good judgment of the person who's in that office um, to exercise his or her powers um, appropriately. So I don't know the answer, um, Julie. I think there's definitely gonna be a temptation. I think it's going to depend on uh, the American people understanding the full consequences of what happens when we place someone in. And that next time we may not have the Three Stooges presidency. You know, we, mm. we may not figure out all of the, you know, the craziness and the bumbling because you know of inexperience there may be shrewder people smarter people um who understand how the guardrails work and how to keep things uh much more below the surface um so so i think it, it's a concern it's definitely a concern i mean you've raised some really good points here about how a president who sort of shatters norms um is, is virtually unconstrained. I mean, because we have seen places where 
the the law and the rules have stopped the Trump administration, but where it is uh, something is uh, just a norm accepted that this is how you do it, he'll plow right through it. But but you just, as you pointed out, it's hard to sort of legislate all these things that are and we're not really having a very quick moving Congress these days. Like it's as even more politically divided. So, you know, if you were going to sort of fix some of those norms, if you were going to try to take some norms um, and and make them rules uh, to prevent that sort of a similar experience that we've had from the uh, last four years, or that sort of scenario that you just laid out of somebody who is, um, you know, more sort of bureaucratically competent than the, the current administration has been at times, what would you do? What are those sort of your, some of your top examples of, of norms you would replace with rules? Yeah, um, I think uh, one might be to strengthen um, protections for inspector generals. Uh, yeah. And in terms of maybe the grounds required for firing them, um, because the inspector generals are kind of one vehicle by which Congress should come to know about misconduct in the executive branch. And so in that it can over, it can exercise its oversight function. And what we saw was um, basically an attempt to cut that channel off at the knees. Um, again, by installing loyalists into those positions or, um, you know, creating uh, dubious legal justifications for, for not passing on whistleblowing complaints. Um, you know, I mean, I don't think people fully appreciate impeachment happened because the inspector general went ahead and told Congress <laughs> or Congress found out about this whistleblower complaint despite the attempts of uh, the Trump administration um, with the uh, acquiescence of the Justice Department to bury it. Um, so I think the inspector generals are really uh, going to be important. Um, and then got fired over, right? Is and then got fired over it. Absolutely. Um, I, it's, it's hard again, because, you know, some of these things can be challenged for, you know, on constitutional grounds, because all of these people are in the executive branch, and the president has under Article Two of the Constitution, the authority to hire and fire these people. Um, and so, you know, starting to put a lot of constraints on them do, you know, can, um, can be challenging. So, you know, short of creating additional um, restrictions on firing, I think, you know, including, say, for the FBI director, uh, putting, you know, ground, more grounds as opposed to, I just don't like him anymore. Um, I think Congress could also start to take some of its power back. Um, one of the things that we've seen over the last, you know, four decades is um, an accretion of power uh, by the executive branch because Congress has given it away. Um, a lot of powers that belong in the hands of Congress, which has been delegated to the president. Um, so one uh, example is the president's ability to uh, declare a national emergency, mm. which triggers all kinds of other things. Now, to some degree, you have to do this, right? Because 
you know, if say lizard aliens land on, you know, land in the United States from outer space, there may not be time for Congress to react. You want the president to be able to uh, respond um, very quickly. Um, you know, this is a, obviously a fantastical hypothetical, but um, but there is that that power has been given often with very little criteria or guidance um, for in which it can be used. Same thing with uh, you know the travel ban. Um, the travel ban was issued under delegated authority by Congress that basically kind of gives the power to uh, bar the interests of people in the interest of national security. You know, so there's not um, I think uh, a clear criteria on which to exercise this. It, it, this is not great for America because, you know, Congress can't, you know, has to sit there and hype and imagine every possible scenario in legislating, which then leaves us open um, in, in the case of emergencies. But the other option is what we've seen in the last four years is that someone who is willing to abuse the authority can come in and do it if you don't create um, a narrower space within which he or she can act. It's not clear to me that the voters will hold the senators who filibustered the Lizard Alien Deportation Act uh, <laughs> uh, accountable or not. Um, we just haven't seen a lot of presidents be willing to give up power. We have definitely not seen even, uh, you know, a divided Congress be able to do a lot of legislating. Um, Biden is going to be frustrated, is going to want to use executive orders and the powers he has. But is there anything different about this moment in time that may make him more willing to give up power than other sort of executive branch leaders? Yeah, and I mean, you, you observe something great. So presidents of both parties, um, once they're in the Oval Office, they don't, they don't want to be the people in charge of curbing their own authority. Um, you know, starting from, you know, for, let's take, for example, the War Powers Resolution, um, which attempts to uh, rein in the war making powers of the president. You know, presidents of both parties have, have not acknowledged the constitutionality of, of that, um, which was passed over Nixon's veto. Um, I think, though, again, given the abuse we've seen, um, one thing that we're going to see is if the Republicans remain in control of the Senate, um, you know, they want to see some of uh, the president, the, the uh, authorities of the president reined in when another party is in power. And so if I think with some careful calibration um, and working with Democrats, Biden could um, come to agreements on ways to uh, rein in the power of, of the presidency writ large um, in ways that, you know, wouldn't tie his hands for to, to um, achieve the policy things that he wants to do. Um, so, for example, you know, reining in uh, the, the criteria or basis on which, you know, the president can declare a national emergency, I, I think could be a good start. You know, that's not something a president does every day, for example. Um, and, and I think there are other areas uh, that that he could work with it. It's it's definitely counter to their interests, right? Which is why we haven't seen it happen um, and, and why it tends to go the other way. Um, 
the uh, NSA, the National Security Agency, uh, the, the people who do the sort of eavesdropping around the world, um, are another agency we're talking about today. Uh, Trump, uh, there was a Trump loyalist installed as a general counsel there this week, a civil service position, a position that will not necessarily end with the Trump administration. Michael Ellis is a veteran of the National Security Council under Mr. Trump. Um, is this uh, is this a problem for Biden administration if the if Trump is seeding uh, people into the bureaucracy of the national security um, apparatus? What, what do you what did you make of that? And you know, is that something Mr. Biden should be worried about? Yeah, I think we need to keep an eye on it um, because of the specific people that were put in. Uh, Michael Ellis, who was put in with general into the general counsel's office, over by the way, two career. Uh, people at NSA um, in the general counsel's office who I think might have otherwise gotten that job. Um, and he comes in having no experience in NSA and uh, some minimal experience on the National Security Council. He was the one who, uh, what that uh, Alexander Vindeman testified, moved the Ukraine call to President Zelensky onto the code word server as a way of restricting people's access to it, uh, which is not how you normally, I mean, you know, that potentially violates classification rules, for example. Mm. Um, so we're, we're seeing somebody who's not really a rule follower. So you have to wonder who, why is he there, um, especially in this late stage. And then we see these appointments also of people who have kind of uh, tried to help the president's narrative um, be put in places at DOD. I would be worried that they are there to, um, basically like tamper with the intelligence that is there in one way or another, whether it's to try to conceal it, move it, um, expose it in ways that, uh, you know, create a specific story. Um, but all of that, if that were to occur, uh, it just makes it harder for the incoming administration to come in and sort out what the hell was going on, you know? Uh you mentioned, uh, made reference to declassifications, this material that has been pushed out by uh, John Ratcliffe, the Director of National Intelligence, over the objections of the NSA. Um, uh, we had some notes about Crossfire Hurricane, the 2016 uh, investigation that uh, the NSA and CIA did not want out. Um, there are reports about potentially more documents coming out, certainly, uh, the president's son, Don Jr., is on Twitter regularly asking for more material to be declassified and released. Um, you know, what's the what's the objection? What's the this seems important to the president? Uh, you know, is is this gonna is there any potential for damage here? Is this just a sideshow? Should one be worried about these eleventh uh, hour declassifications? Um. Yeah, sorry, I got a message that I was signed out of Zoom. I'm still here, right? I can okay. see you. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so, I mean, it seems to me that the big thorn that the president has had in his side is this idea of the Russian interference in the 2016 election, um, which I think he believes delegitimizes uh, his, his win. Um, and also the idea that, you know, his campaign was involved with that interference in some way. Um, 
the declassification continues to these selective declassifications, as well as what we saw in terms of the narratives that were promoted through impeachment, um, through congressional investigations, like the ones headed by Senator Ron Johnson, to the discovery of the Hunter laptop, um, you know, thing in Delaware, is you know this constant attempt to uh, to displace blame on the 2016 interference from Russia to Ukraine or to some other entity. That is what I think is kind of one of the goals here is to, before we leave, we're gonna make the case that this didn't happen. It was a hoax. It, it wasn't Russia. It was a 400 pound guy in the basement or Ukraine. Um, here's my question, Julian, that I find, you know, this is what I don't really get about it. This seems to me that I don't think the president really needs this narrative. I mean, maybe for his own ego, but I think his followers and his supporters believe his narrative anyway. Right, right. The, the person that this all benefits, especially in terms of declassification, um, is Vladimir Putin. Because when we declassify, uh, you know, intel, um, stuff that we've learned about, you know, you know how or or reports that we've gotten, whether it's from human intelligence, signals intelligence, um, that's not hard for a very sophisticated intelligence service like Russia's to reverse engineer and figure out, you know, who, what, where, when, um, and dry up our sources who we hope to continue giving us information um, into the future. It also helps Putin with his public narrative um, and this idea that, look, these sanctions are unjustified. Uh, you know, Russia is a victim and this, you know, is bullied on the world stage and we don't do these things. Um, so it helps them with their plausible deniability narrative. I think it mostly helps them with identifying uh, sources and methods that we have used um, and you know, potentially puts them in danger. Uh, so that's what worries me because I can't see that this is really something that Trump wants. I can see that it could be something that um, Russia wants very much. Yeah, I think that's a good point. We saw in these uh, earlier declassification of CIA memos, references to exchanges between Russians. Now it was blacked out who the Russians were, but it wasn't blacked out what they were talking about. So presumably the Russian intelligence knows, you know, uh, who was talking. And then you all of a sudden told, told them what you were listening to. And, and, you know, it's meaningless to us, but to them, they can go and say, oh, better throw away those cell phones or shut down. Absolutely. It, you know, and we even saw this with the unmasking um, debacle when, when, you know, NSA had to, when they declassified the list of all the people who had mm -hmm. uh, made unmasking requests, um, which it turned out, by the way, none of them, none of those requests were unwarranted or, or illegal in any way, but it gave, you know, the dates um, that they were requested. Again, you know, it's not hard to say like, okay, who was talking to Michael Flynn or on or around these dates that everyone was requesting um, unmasking information. And once you identify who and on what channels they were speaking to him, you dry them up, they're gone. Um, you know, they're not available for collection anymore. Um, and I think, you know, your average person may not 
you know, see all those those downstream consequences. But people like Gina Haspel obviously do. Um, the NSA obviously does. And so it, it that's where I think Trump benefits from getting his loyalists in because they don't care um, about those consequences and they will be able to override objections and um, take the actions that he wants. I'll just add one more thing. Um, the, the intelligence assessment that Russia interfered in the 2016 election was FBI, CIA, NSA. So if you want three agencies to get on board with, we were wrong, um, who, do you, who do you fire and, and put, put in place so that you can get you know, the, the, the official story that you want or at least an official statement before you leave office? I want to go back to something you made reference to at the, the beginning of our conversation um, when you talked about Ray's, uh, you know, pushing back on, on some of the Antifa requests that, uh, that President Trump had made. Um, but we also have a case where we're, we're having extremists on both sides really agitated. The, the NSA director has warned about potential foreign influence to try to turn some of these extremist groups in America violent. Um, has the FBI done enough to, you know, watch extremist groups that are engaged in criminal uh, behavior? Um, how do we uh, what should a Biden administration do on this front? It seems like it's potentially uh, both politically fraught, but also very important to address. It is very important to address. It gets very complicated. Um, you know, we have, and especially the FBI has, um, you know, a checkered past in terms of investigating organizations um, that have deemed to be national security threats in the 60s and 70s, for example, you know, communism and um, leftist groups and draft dodgers. And as a result, there are uh, major uh, barriers in place um, under the Attorney General guidelines protecting First Amendment activity by domestic organizations. And so, you know, I think the, the first, you know, thing, and I think it's a good thing, is that the FBI has to sit and watch until there is um, evidence that this is going to cross the line from speech to criminal activity. Um, you know, Beyond that, though, I think in terms of um, assessing foreign coordination uh, with some of these groups, I think that once that starts to happen, you can certainly, I think, trigger more um, investigative activity. Um, and we've done that with certain groups. There have been groups um, like, for example, uh, the Adam Waffen, which is a right wing national group. I think the base also, or the leader, it's, you know, I think it's started in the U.S., the leader is in Russia. So I think, you know, we, ha we have the legal tools and we have the legal standards in place. What we need is um, for a president who respects um, the way that these, our existing kind of standards and designations work um, and are willing to say them out loud um, when they go in that direction, even if it, you know, it might make people who would otherwise vote for him mad or whatever it is. Um, and I think, you know, leaving it in the hands of the FBI and the Department of Justice to, and the Department of Homeland Security under trusted professionals to make those calls um, will be the right thing to do. 
So Trump has not acknowledged uh, Biden as president-elect yet. We have do not have a, a formal uh, transition process. Uh, Biden doesn't have access to the president's daily brief, the intelligence uh, uh, briefing. Um, how much does that matter? How much is that going to uh, impact an eventual Biden administration? Is it a distraction of a couple of weeks or could it really be a, a problem for the next administration? Um, I think whenever you have a gap, it's a problem, right? I think especially, so here's my main concern, um, especially from a national security perspective, because we, we have a president right now who we know, or at least from reporting, does not read the presidential daily brief, who doesn't um, pay attention to the threats. Um, and so, you know, we're, and then we're having this incoming person who's not being allowed access to it. Um, so it's basically this, this vacuum. Um, in, I mean, in some ways it's like, that's what we've had now <laughs> and uh, until now. So it doesn't, it's sort of the status quo, but, um, you know, let's take, for example, uh, COVID. Um, I believe the reporting is that that came on the radar um, of the White House and the briefings like as early as like, like a year ago, like November of last year, right? Um, you're, you're shaking your head. I don't know. You probably know the details well, better than me. I think that the, the November is a little early. I think that reported there's some pushback, but no doubt that it was in the PDB uh, in January and that there were some, there were warnings there, right? So. so let's say there's something that's coming on the radar, you know, now, December. I mean, you want the incoming administration to be able to hit the ground, like kind of be able to understand what's happening, um, figure out, especially if it's something new, like, you know, the, the pandemic was kind of this new kind of threat, this biological threat that was coming in. If it's something that's new, you know, it takes time to like think about who are the people that we need, need to get on board, what are the resources we need to get lined up. You don't want that to happen starting on noon on January 20th. You want people to start to have been planning for that. And so, um, you know, that's the problem. Now, how long will he be able to delay this? Um, I don't know. I think he is statutorily required. I think when there is an apparent winner, um, it triggers the statutory requirement. So, you know, it's tough because I think, uh, I think President-elect Biden is doing the right thing by not trying to litigate this stuff because it only draws attention. Um, you know, is sort of like ignoring the tantrum that the five-year-old is having <laughs> and continuing. Um, but uh, I, I think that you and I discussed this before this started. I'm starting to see signs that reality is setting in. I mean, even just the idea, the, the floating the idea of running again in 2024 is an implicit concession. If you have a second yeah. term, then guess what? You would be ineligible to run in 2024. So if you're talking about running in 2024, then you know that you're not going to be president for the next four years. So I, I, I'm hoping that this is a temporary thing and that in another week, we'll just be able to move on with you know, reality. Well, we have a bunch of great questions from the audience. I'm going to dive in a little early because there's a lot of them and they're, they're good ones that you're going to want to answer. Um, uh, if you do have a question you haven't answered yet, please post it in the YouTube chat. Um, so the first question uh, is about a uh, piece you wrote in the Washington Post about the 
prospect for a self-pardon for uh, Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, you know, the, the uh, viewer says it is speculative, but what do you think? Could President Trump give himself a self-pardon? I would say that depends on whether Trump is going to be a rational actor or a not rational actor. Um, you know, a self-pardon is uh, the validity of one um, is questionable since it's never been tried. Um, you know, no, no president has tried to pardon himself. Um, the Constitution gives almost unfettered pardon authority to the president. It doesn't say that a self-pardon is proscribed. However, I think most legal scholars agree that both the history and origins of the pardon power combined with the structure of the Constitution um, would make a self-pardon invalid. And so I think someone thinking rationally, someone who really wants to make sure that they are protected would not try to do this because it would take time to litigate and challenge it in a future administration. And if he were stripped of that protection, he then is exposed with no way to correct that. Um, so I think that, you know, and of course, I don't know that the president wants to acknowledge that he doesn't have a power because he thinks Article 2 lets him do everything. So he may very well try to do that. I think, though, my personal view is I think we will most likely see him step down at some point. It may be even the day before, you know, inauguration. I don't I don't know how far in advance, but enough time to see uh, Pence uh take uh, the oath of office. Um, and then he would have the power of the pardon and be able to grant it. And that I think would be much more airtight. Um, that could also be consistent with Trump's character in the sense of, yeah, I'm done with this. I'm going to walk away. Like, I quit. You didn't fire me. It's not that I didn't win. Um, I just don't want this job anymore. Um, and there is a safe, a face-saving way for him to like leave and also uh, get someone in to pardon him and also um, potentially pardon his children or, you know, these other players that have been out there, Paul Manafort, uh, Michael Flynn, um, other people. Uh, uh, and that wouldn't, I think if Pence did it, I mean, George H.W. Bush pardoned six people from Iran-Contra. Right. Um, you know, precedent. in many ways, uh, he, you know, I don't know that he has a real political future running for president anyway. So, um, you know, that that's what I see. So there's a couple questions about uh, whether Trump will um, uh, still get classified uh, access to classified documents after being president will re retain his security clearance and is there anything to stop him from spilling the secrets that he's learned over the last four years? Is this a real concern in your mind? What do you, what do you think? I think it's absolutely a real concern. So in terms of his clearance, because um, I tweeted this to you and then my, my colleague uh, pointed out, he's like, well, there's nothing to strip. He doesn't have a security clearance, which is important to remember that the president is basically the one person in the federal government who gets access to classified information, but doesn't undergo a background check or formally get a clearance because it's basically inherent in the position that he holds. Um, so, uh, but I think, um, I believe that most presidents normally get, you know, 
either temporary clearances and access uh, to certain kinds of information um, because of the idea that given their experience and what they've seen and maybe some of their institutional knowledge, they may be useful in terms of consulting uh, future administrations on potential issues. I don't that's think that's a role a that Trump is really interested in playing, um, to yeah. be honest. Um, so, you know, uh, but, um, and I think, you know, we already mentioned, I don't know that he, how much he's paying attention to his briefings. Um, so, you know, how much, and people are like, well, how much is he really gonna retain? Having said that, you still know a lot. I mean, you know, he's been in the room to make decisions, you know, the, the strike on Soleimani, the, you know, um, withdrawing of troops. I mean, he's, there is a, even a baseline uh, level of information that I think would be a gold mine um, for foreign intelligence services. I used to, you know, I worked with, um, you know, flipped sources uh, from other countries and, you know, even small little tidbits that for them may be nothing are for us incredibly valuable because they, they could be a little piece of a bigger puzzle that really helps us. Um, this is why we should be concerned that he's $421 million in debt and we're not really sure to whom. Um, so, you know, in an from an intelligence standpoint, he's vulnerable and he has valuable information um, that I think could be that, that other countries would be very tempted uh, and I think they would be dumb not to try to exploit. So we have a couple questions from the audience about the asking how much of the intelligence community is still intact, is there to sort of rebuild from, how deep the damage goes. And also a question on what do you think is the most damage? What's the most politicized? The Pentagon, Department of Justice, the intelligence community. So tackle those two if you, if you want. How deep do I think the damage goes? Yeah, is it just at the top or are we like, do we have, do we bring in uh, a group of sort of uh, new agents, officers who have different values than, than a previous generation because they were attracted, a different kind of person was attracted to the service? I think that's a great question. I think right now um, it's, I, I think it's mostly the top. I mean, I think if, if there's one thing we've learned from the last four years, it's that the, the thing that has saved us is our vast bureaucracy. You know, I mean, it, you know, it was some analyst at CIA, at CIA who, who was the whistleblower on this Ukraine call. You know, we've had um, rank and file agents uh, uh, continuing investigations, those career prosecutors who resigned when they were like, I'm not doing that, I'm not signing my name to that. Um, so, you know, and I mean, not to not even to, you know, mention the the civil servants, like the poll workers, the, you know, county officials who like help make our election go for, like, I mean, you know, our, our civil service, our bureaucrats, I mean, these are like the people who are making the country run. Um, I think in an, if, if, if Trump were there for another four years, I don't think that that would be true anymore, at least at the federal level. I, you know, I, and, and, and I mean, this is completely anecdotal and not representative, but just the people that I knew who were in the federal government were like ready to quit. And so I think once you have um, a critical mass of people exit and then you start hiring pe new people, you, you can potentially cha change the culture 
of these organizations. Um, and I think right now the culture of those organizations is mostly still nonpartisan. Let's just do our job. Let's, you know, the, the mission and the constitution is what's most important. Um, having said that, as I mentioned before, I think perception is everything in terms of uh, how people perceive of these agencies. And I think the, I think the greatest damage that has been done um, has been to the Department of Justice. I think that's been, you know, it's just been a travesty. So one of our uh, viewers has asked you, um, do you think that some of the primary targets of Mr. Trump's wrath who have been pushed out should be brought in by Mr. Biden as a sort of symbolic restoration of um, uh, the bureaucracy of nonpartisanship? They mentioned Colonel Alex Vindeman. Uh, they also mentioned Andy McCabe, two very different kind of individuals. But what do you think about bringing some of these people who've been pushed out back? Um, I mean, I think in terms of political appointees, there aren't any that I would really say he has any obligation to bring back, except I think, again, in, if you were to fight Christopher Ray, but only because of the idea of the 10-year term of... Right of the FBI. I mean, otherwise, I think a president does have, you know, they, they are, everything being normal, can bring in their own people. Um, they are expected to keep on the person that's in the FBI position, which is why I have accepted that. Um, you know, Vindman and McCabe are, are a little different because they weren't political appointees. I mean, they were career people who got fired. Right. Um, McCabe needs one more day. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that piece is, um, you know, winding its way through, you know, I think it's in the, still in the courts in terms of whether that firing was political, you know, whatever, the, the validity of that firing and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, uh, like reinstating them, um, I mean, I, you know, I think Alexander Vindeman, yes, because that seemed like, that seemed like clearly a retaliatory, you know, against what our laws, you know, he, he testified and you don't, right. you know, it's, um, it's retaliation and intimidation. Right. Um, the McCabe thing is harder because I, you know, I think, uh, I do think that that was retaliation also, um, but you know, man, I don't want to open that can of worms of, right. you know, right. I mean, cause he, he was in, he was in a hugely like, you know, what, you know, it's not like you're gonna hire him back and be like, be an agent in, you know, New York. Like he was the deputy director. He was the guy at the top. So, you know, if you were going to reinstate him, I think you'd have to put him in the top and then you get into questions of the director of the FBI should be able to teach, to choose the people, right? So I think you, and then, you know, of course the whole Russia stuff and I that I think, um, you know, acknowledging the, the unfairness, I think you, you create a lot more um, political stuff that I think the FBI can, does not need right now. Is That's where I would uh, be worried. So another question was, you know, given the sort of deep partisanship in the US Senate, will Biden get anybody through? Is, is I mean, Trump has had to use a lot of uh, act people in acting capacities. Uh, this question said, well, will Biden have to do the same? Will Biden have four years of, uh, um, of, of folks in acting jobs? What's, what's, your, um, what's your thought? 
I really don't know. I'm not, you know, a political analyst and I don't know how obstructionist the Senate would be. Um, you know, especially if you were to like nominate high, highly qualified people who obviously knew how to do the job. And, you know, I, I think, um, I think it, you know, Biden, it might force Biden to be more centrist in his, cho in his, you know, selections. Um, I don't know that he would have been otherwise, you know, I don't know where he would go otherwise, but um, will they obstruct everybody? I don't know. Um, I, it, it, that does open, you know, I, I think you get to a point where, you know, the question for, for everybody in government now is, do we want to make norm breaking the norm? Right. Is that what you right. really want? Do you want do to, want and I think for the Senate, do you want your own institutional power to basically be discarded? Because if you have one more administration comes in that basically says, F you, I don't need you to confirm my people because I'll just make them all acting and they'll just, you know, um, I don't need to acknowledge your subpoenas. Like that, that hurts the Senate. Like that hurts Congress. Like that's their institutional power. So I think now, you know, I'm wondering, are they going to, in the interest of preserving their own importance mm. um, and relevancy to governing, um, you know, they too have an interest in performing their job, like doing their job. Um, how that will play out, I'm not really sure. Uh, so one of our viewers has has said, hey, we well, haven't talked about the Department of Homeland Security and they're noting the sort of no ice, abolish ice uh, uh, signs you see all over uh, Los Angeles. Um, and they're talking about uh, uh, abuse by ice and uh, Customs and Border Patrol uh, that have been uh, uh, written about. They ask, should we abolish the Department of Homeland Security and start over? Um, is this something the Biden administration should take on? Uh, should they do some big reforms, some little reforms? What, how well I mean, is Homeland Security working? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think first, you know, the, the first order of business is gonna be to get to the bottom of some of these policies that were implemented. Uh, the legality of them, I mean, you know, the, the children that have been, you know, how do we repatriate them? So, I mean, I think that has to be the, the, the first thing. Um, and then, you know, uh, identifying like, was this, you know, was this leadership? Was this systemic? You know, where, where is this coming from? Now, remember that, you know, DHS, ICE, like our um, Customs Immigration, uh, I'm I'm I'm, refer, I'm I'm forgetting all of the different acronyms. I mean, when I I remember when I was in the um, FBI, it was INS that mm -hmm. had you know um, all of these functions. And one thing that I've thought about is um, there was some benefit to that. I'm, I'm I don't know bureaucracy wise whether it made it too unwieldy, but in many ways, because you had this organization that was both responsible for bringing in the immigrants, you know, giving them mm -hmm. the naturalization, mm -hmm. uh, you know, oaths. I mean, there's part of that that is also with the enforcement piece. Um, you know, you create a certain balance of culture and so, and teasing them out um, and creating a, an enforcement only part uh, versus a separate part that brings them in, I think also has um, affects institutional culture. Um, I haven't studied it, but I think that's where you would need to go. Like, what is the institutional culture here? Has it become so um, 
you know, toxic and dysfunctional and in it, unable to, to um, pursue its mission in accordance with the constitution, um, that it does have to be reimagined. And it wouldn't be the first time that we've done that. It, the, the whole point is it was reimagined after 9-11. Um, have we faced a significant enough crisis that we need to do that again? Um, I don't know. I, I don't, I haven't drilled down into like my knowledge of these agencies. I wouldn't want to characterize them one way or the other without knowing if it's, I mean, cause there were some, it was some pretty bad leadership, unfortunately. So it's hard to say. So we're almost at the end. So we only have a, a, a little bit of time for this last question, which is, should the United States, instead of prosecuting people who uh, may have done something wrong during the Trump administration, should we have a truth and reconciliation commission to, to look at abuses, but also to look at where we should have some new rules as opposed to norms? What do you think about a commission idea? Um, I don't, I, I, I need to know more about how this would be imagined, right? I mean, um, you know, after Iran-Contra, you had a tower commission, um, which was charged with looking at what happened in Iran-Contra. Um, so, you know, you could have that. I think the difference here is it's just so much, right? Tower, like the Iran-Contra was like, like, one thing. I mean, it was pretty big and it was pretty bad, but it was like kind of one thing. Um, whereas I think you have so many things across the board from, you know, what we just discussed with Homeland Security to emoluments violations to, you know, um, you know, the, the sacking of the IGs, the, the, you know, politicization of intelligence um, on top of the criming. Um, the like, various obstruction of justice stuff, um, would you really be able to um, address that? I would say, and also I should add the Tower Commission when it did that, um, complicated prosecutions later because often in terms of getting people to testify and giving them immunity, it ended up making uh, the, it throwing out um, actual criminal prosecutions later on. So you also end up with that complication. I would say that you do the special counsel route um, you figure out what, you know, what actual violations of federal law have been committed. You decide which ones of those you want to pursue. Um, and then, you know, based on all of the, uh, things you've uncovered, that could be a basis for a commission, a policy-based commission to look at kind of like the 9-11 commission did to look retroactively at how did this all go wrong? And then, you know, what are the recommendations that we can do to fix it? as opposed to trying to combine them both into, into one. So I think we have to end things here and I will thank you very much. And our YouTube viewers have uh, sent many notes to you to say how much they appreciate your insights here and on CNN and on Twitter. Uh, and they are urging you to keep it up. Um, but uh, I really thank you for this conversation here today. It's been a pleasure to thank, uh, to talk with you. And I'd like to thank Zocalo as well for giving Same. us this platform and everyone for watching live and sending in their questions. We hope this sparks many more conversations. Thank you very much. Thanks, Julian. Bye.